Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome back to the DFB podcast or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Uh, we are, I think I'm the most excited I've been yet since we've started. We have the one and only Wheat Pete, who I've just started listening to probably this spring. I guess I started listening to his podcast regularly and we are, we're very pleased and very excited that we were able to have him on the show this week. Um, so I think a lot of you have been uh, already getting Keith some questions uh, via text or uh, Twitter. Um, Keith, do you want to just sit quick, say hi while you're there and then we'll, we'll get Pete to give us his background here as well. Yeah. Hi everybody. I'm coming from a uh, very wet Western Elgin County today. So with that, I am very grateful, like I said, to have Pete along with us. So Pete, can you, uh, just give anyone that doesn't know, I guess a little bit of your background. Yeah, absolutely. Luke. And thanks for having me. It's awesome to be on this, uh, a dairy discussion, like, holy, a cropper on a dairy discussion. That's <laughs> nah, gotta be bizarre, man. Just bizarre. So yeah, uh, I, I do work with Real Agriculture now. I do a weekly podcast called The Word. I've been doing that. We're into our sixth year, if you can imagine. Before that, I spent 30 years as the cereal specialist for the Ministry of Agriculture and Food. I grew up on a farm. I still farm in a small way. We're about 250 acres of cash crop near Lucan, Ontario. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. Uh, we do a bunch of research still through Middlesex Soil and Crop Improvement Association. So some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today uh, in terms of cover crops and, and managing cover crops or emergency forages is really what they become in a dairy situation. We, we've done research projects through Middlesex Soil and Crop uh, and really appreciate their support to allow us to do that. So yeah, I farm, we do research, and I'm an agronomist. Awesome. Well, we, again, we are very pleased to have you on the show with us today and uh, appreciate you taking the time to jump in here. Yeah, today we want to talk about cover crops, alternative forages, some of these new things uh, that dairy farmers are experimenting with, whether it's heifer feed, dry cow feed, or giving it right to the lactating dairy cows and how we can best use this feed and yeah, get the most off the land we have and, and make the best quality feed we can for our animals. So Keith, if you want to jump in, I'll let you take it away here for a bit. Yeah, I guess this uh, idea kind of spawned. I was I was thinking about uh, this spring when we were changing rations. So last fall, last winter, um, after the 2019 growing season, we didn't have a whole lot of hay inventory going into winter. So a lot of us were feeding high, high corn silage diets. And uh, once hay started coming off here this spring, we had to do a complete 180. And a lot of us were going to higher corn silage, or sorry, higher haylage diets. And it kind of perpetuates a problem that we've been having is building inventory. So the thought was like, what are some crops that we can plant, you know, after wheat to kind of build some inventories? What are some crops that we can plant, you know, after corn silage going in and we can harvest as a, as a spring forage next year? So Pete, I guess my question is like, what can we do after wheat right now to try and build some inventory and maybe uh, set our soil up for success going into the winter? So I, I think that's a, a really great place to start because we're right in that window now. Wheat harvest has come off and it's pretty simple to go out there and plant either just straight oats or plant oats and peas. And those would be the, the two main ones that I would look at. And don't forget that whenever I talk, I don't care if I talk cereal rye or I talk oats, we talk barley, we talk any grass, man, you want a quality product. The timing of harvest is so critical because the quality drops so rapidly. Once you hit flag leaf stage, it's at great protein levels but not big yield. As you move through that to boot and further on, the quality, as you guys well know, just tanks, yeah. but the yield continues to go up. So absolutely, the, we did a bunch of, of research. It's interesting. You know, I get a lot of quite growers who say, well, what's wrong with barley after, after a wheat crop? Barley appears to be more day length sensitive. And, and for some reason, you plant barley and oats in the spring, barley always heads out first you plant it after wheat 
and the barley is incredibly slow to head out. It's as if the day length doesn't match up with the requirements of the barley crop to make it head out. And so we always got much lower yields out of a barley crop after a winter wheat crop this time of year than we did out of an oat crop. I don't care, try barley, but we looked at different barley varieties. We scratched our head about that and, and it just didn't work as well as the oats did. Uh, you could move to a, a spring triticale or a, a spring rye, cereal rye crop. I, I think those are both options as well. We didn't look at those at, at the particular point in time because the seed was not as common. But with the oat crop, so first off, it, you know, immediately guys want to say, well, okay, I'm going to grow for forage. And, and growing for forage is different than just growing for cover crop and soil health. So if I, if I want soil health, man, the seeding rate is low. We keep our costs low. I'm going to go for forage that immediately people want to ramp that seeding rate up significantly. It's 100% the right answer. So yes, we want more seed. But when we did our trials, what I found most interesting was that seeding rate wasn't nearly as important as nitrogen application. So do you need more seed? Sure, you need 70 pounds of oat seed or, or you know, maybe 80 pounds but you don't get much benefit if you push that to 100 or 110 or even 140 pounds of seed. You get way more benefit to take the dollars that you would have spent on extra seed and spend them on more nitrogen. And the more nitrogen we put on, the more yield we got. And of course, you know, if you're a dairy farmer, you should have lots of liquid manure to put out there. And if you use liquid manure as your nitrogen source, that's 100% fine. Uh, it will also supply sulfur. I would suggest that if you're a, you know, you don't have manure to put out there, you not need not only nitrogen now, you need sulfur. We see such big response on, on forage crops to sulfur now. And so the oat crop likely is going to respond to that sulfur. But the other thing that just blew us away is watch the amount of potash that comes off in that cereal forage when you harvest it because the more nitrogen we put on, the higher the percentage potash was in the forage that was harvested. That's really interesting because uh, when we're looking at feed analysis, I'm always looking at, you know, what's our K rate rates, what's our phosphorus, what's our sulfur looking at? And that's one of the things I see a lot is sulfur deficiency and it's low and, and from our end, it's a building block of protein. And when we did those cover crop or those emergency forage trials, that was back in the 2010 timeframe. So we were still getting a lot more sulfur out of the atmosphere then. Uh, we were still probably 12 to 14 pounds of sulfur. We're down now in many areas to five to seven pounds of sulfur. So sulfur becomes more important today than it was 10 years ago. But what, what threw me in, in that data set was this almost straight line relationship as we put on more nitrogen, the, the percentage potash in the forage also increased. So we increased it from, you know, around 0.2% to, to up almost to 0.3% just by that increased nitrogen. And I asked the plant physiologist why that would be because it didn't, like, it's, come on, there's got to be a reason. And their best guess was that it's an iron balance in the plant. So as we add more nitrogen, nitrogen is a negative ion in the plant. In order to keep a balance in the plant, the plant picked up more potash to keep that uh, balance in, in the ration or in the, in the uh, forage rather. Both from a crop removal standpoint, if you're out there buying oats from a cash crop neighbor and, and you think you can pay them only a penny or two a pound, you're taking a ton of potash away from that farm. So it's worth more than you realize if there is a good crop there because there's some nitrogen applied. But also from a nutritionist standpoint, I, I'm not a nutritionist, but I sort of think that might have an implication in how you balance the ration. Well, and especially to what group of animals we can feed that to. Like if we're pulling off a super high potassium oat crop or something like that in the fall, you know, we're tending not to feed that to a dry cow, right? You know, we might segregate that and put it into either lactating cow ration or, or heifer rations even. So it, you, you know what? farmers are doing with the soil really kind of impacts what we're seeing through the feed analysis as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah, so, so that's just one of the, one of the things that we, we learned that we did not anticipate to find when we did that, that research. 
the uh, other thing I want to talk about is uh, fungicide in the fall on uh, oats. Um, because it's lots of times I've seen guys coming out of the field, you know, it's mid, late September, they're cutting their oats. And that case tractor looks like an Alice Chalmers because it's just covered in rust. Can you maybe uh, touch on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for that question. Because I, I, if, I, if I did not talk about that, I would not be a very darn good agronomist. So yes, crown rust has evolved to overcome our genetic resistance. If you go back into the 2005 timeframe, we didn't need to spray oats for crown rust because we had good genetic resistance. That has broken down. We haven't yet gotten rust resistant built back into our oat varieties. There are differences in oat varieties. So I encourage all of the listeners to grow a variety that has got as good as possible tolerance to rust. Fungicide, man, if we only rely on the fungicide, then we're going to get resistance to the fungicide. So we really need both the genetic resistance or tolerance and the fungicide, but crown rust. Number one, there's all sorts of spores out there this time of year because it's had time to build up over the summer. It it overwinters on on Barbary and and then it, it moves into the oat crop in the early spring. So it's had lots of time to ramp up. Now you put that out there in the with a, a forage oat crop after wheat where you need the leaves to be good quality and you don't spray it with a fungicide, you pretty much might as well not bother growing the crop. So 100% watch your pre-harvest interval. So look at your fungicide that you're using because there are limitations or requirements by the label on when you can apply that fungicide and how long before you can harvest that crop for forage. Most of them aren't too bad. So it's not that we're limited in a major way from that perspective, but you still have to watch that. So so read the label, watch your pre-harvest interval, but spray that oat crop. Uh, in fact, for, for oats for grain, the top producers are now spraying twice for rust control in that oat crop. That's how severe the rust problem is. Uh, in, in a forage oat, you, you have to spray. You just have to count on that. It's funny you mentioned the forage oat. Like, is there a difference between like a regular run of the mill oat compared to what like you see like forage oats out there? Absolutely. We actually imported it. When we did those trials, we imported a forage oat from Western Canada thinking, okay, so these have been designed to, to grow more forage. Let's see what they'll do. What a dog they turned out to be. It was unbelievable <laughs> because Again, this day length thing, they came from Western Canada. They were adapted to Western Canada. We brought them to Ontario, to Southwestern Ontario, planted them after August the 1st. So our day length never triggered. And they were like the barley. They never wanted to head. And if you want volume, if you want a, you know, a good amount or quantity of forage, they have to shoot to head. If they don't shoot to head, they just, they're staying vegetative, and so they'll only get maybe a foot high, and they'll get thick, but they, they won't ever put much volume on. So forage oats from Western Canada did not work for us. Are, are there differences between the oat varieties here in Ontario? The answer is absolutely, but we haven't done a lot of work. So I would say uh, if you look at the cereal performance trials on, on gocereals.ca, and I think the best indicator would be straw yield. So we have straw yield data. Look at the oat cultivars. If it's an oat cultivar with really high straw yield, that means that it's putting up a lot more plant biomass before it's it's going to head. And I think those would be the varieties that I would tend to send people to without any better data to look at. A question I get often get from producers is about sorghum sedan or sedan grass after wheat. And I'm kind of on the fence about that. Like I, I don't think Anything I've read about it, it's better off planted in late May, early June, because then you'll get two cuts on it. But with you talking about the photo period and things like that, is there something that we should be looking at? Like, is it a positive or a negative recommendation, I guess, is what I'm asking to to be planting sorghum after wheat? Yeah. So what you really have to look at is when did the wheat come off? Because oats are a cool season crop and they'll grow in the heat of August. They'll continue to grow into the fall. Uh, if you don't get them planted till the 20th of August, that's okay. Uh, but realistically, with any of these crops, to get a decent hay cut, a de- decent forage harvest tonnage-wise, you need six weeks of growth. With the sorghums, with sorghum sedan grass, they need heat. They're like corn. They want 30-degree temperatures. 
And so if you plant them on the 1st of August and you need six weeks to get a cut off, well, we're now at the 15th of September, it's getting very cool. So they aren't gonna do much from a second cut perspective. They, they may give a little bit of regrowth. You wanna pasture that regrowth. Lindsay, Lindsay Smith with Real Agriculture, they have sheep and they got their uh, up in the Ottawa Valley. So they got their sorghum sedan grass planted, I think the 18th of July, gives them six weeks for a cut and then let the sheep graze the regrowth. Well, okay, because oats don't really regrow very much. The challenge is if you, you know, if you want to do some tillage, some weed control, haul some manure, and it gets to be the 10th or the 15th of August, it's simply too late to make sorghum sedan grass work. Have either of you guys actually seen that working yet where they're planting it like first of August or that first week of August and still getting it off in September and having it do okay? Or We have seen some growers do that, but again, typically the growers that are doing that are the few dairy farmers that are left kind of in Essex County or in Chatham-Kent. Okay. And so now we have a much longer season to make that work. And as you're well aware, the sorghum sedans, you get into that September timeframe, you get a frost, then we have the prussic acid issue. So there's more uh, concerns around doing that. It can work, but average dairy farmer it just is a lot more challenging to have enough heat in that window to make that work easily. Keith have you had any experience with guys you know doing it or customers of yours? Funny enough you should ask because uh, on my way home uh, uh, before here to record the podcast I stopped at a producer's field just out Strathroy and uh, he had some beautiful sedan grass there like it was like I'm six feet tall and uh, it was about up to my shoulder so he should be getting ready to cut that here in the next little bit so that should set him up for success to get a, a good enough window for a second crop on it. I've also had a client up in Clinton and what they did is they used the sedan grass as a nurse crop for their alfalfa so it'll be interesting to see that how that works I'm not uh, I'm not sure about that right now we'll have to see what it looks like when it comes back <laughs> I think it might have uh overgrown it a little bit but uh maybe pete maybe you could uh, shed some light on that and you want alfalfa grow alfalfa this uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no think yeah. about this like like that sorghum sedan grass is going to be so thick and so aggressive and the stupid stuff's going to regrow so when does the alfalfa get a chance to to become the predominant crop there's been lots of work even under seeding it into an oat crop or a barley crop in the spring uh, the yields of the alfalfa are never as good as direct seeded alfalfa so if you're desperate for forage then you know get that oat crop off at the flag leaf stage or the the tripper mix or whatever you're doing with get it off early give that alfalfa as much time as possible to be the main crop the chances of it working under a good uh, sorghum sand crop, man, if that works, I'll, I'll tell you what, Keith, if that works, I'll buy you a steak dinner because it ain't working. <laughs> I'll hold you to that, Pete. Yeah, uh, absolutely. No, and it was, and it was my thoughts. Like I was just looking at it last week there on Friday and like the sedan grass looks good, but it'll be interesting to see what the alfalfa looks like coming out of it. So like, what would our reseeding options be on that? I know I got a call from a producer today. And they've got some uh, rough patches in their new seeding and they were just wondering about what the options were with alfalfa. So you can still, you, up until about August 20th, you're going to summer seed alfalfa. You have to give it enough time, enough growth to get the crown developed to survive the winter. And so typically that's August the 20th. Now, when I say August the 20th, August the 20th at Dundalk is different than August the 20th at Leamington. So please yeah. take that right with a grain yeah. of salt. In the seedling year, you can still reseed alfalfa and there's no autotoxicity. That won't happen until next year. So if they have a poor catch in a, the seedling year, get out there as quick as you can and drill in some more alfalfa. By the way, uh, I'm not a supporter of broadcast alfalfa. I hate brilliant seeders. I don't think they work nearly as well. I like to see that alfalfa seed in the ground. So use a drill, get it a quarter inch deep, get some seed to soil contact or a half inch deep so that when it does rain, there's some some soil there to hold that moisture, give that plant a chance. Yeah, and I know I think we've seen some of that this spring too with some of the heavy rains on some heavier uh, clays in Lampton County because uh, it just seems like they didn't get as good of a catch as you think they should have. And if you look at some lighter soil, it was a little bit better catch. And I wonder if it just didn't get washed away. Yeah, well, either washed away or the, the problem is that it, it starts to germinate 
and then it runs out of moisture before it can get its root uh, following the moisture down because alfalfa is such a, a weak seedling it's just not not a very aggressive seedling it's not like winter wheat you can throw winter wheat on the surface and it stupid stuff will grow standing on the plant for crying out loud it'll sprout but alfalfa is just not like that luke did you have any more questions about some of the stuff that we do after wheat that helps a lot there answer some of those questions and i'm hoping some of the guys that i deal with are listening and get some ideas and advice from this i want to shift gears here a little bit and i want to talk about some stuff after corn silage because so i've had this idea of you know doing two to three trying to get three crops in two years so i think that starts after corn silage what are some options for planting so we could have some really good spring forage peter yeah so in in my mind and again we've, we've done a bunch of this work and I know Tom Kilser out of uh, New York State, he's a big promoter of, of winter triticale or fall triticale after a, a silage corn crop. We actually looked at winter triticale, we looked at uh, fall rye or cereal rye, call it what you will, winter wheat, winter barley, and followed, like planted after the silage came off and then followed them through and harvested them the next spring. And, and the answer is just rye. Only problem with rye, so first, rye will give you probably the biggest tonnage. Uh, triticale is right a close second. Winter wheat stinks and winter barley's worse. No, it just is. It, yeah. it, it just, it's no volume yeah. there. The, the rye has so many pluses. The seed is cheap. Bingo, I like that, right? Uh, it's super winter hardy, so you can plant it. And, and it'll come through the winter, survive the winter best. By the way, don't use hybrid rye. So we now have hybrid rye that we grow as a grain crop. Uh, the seed's too expensive. Whatever happened when they, when they hybridize rye, it's winter hardiness disappears. And, and that's a really weird thing, but don't use hybrid rye. Use common rye. Common rye, super winter hardy. The only challenge is that the quality drops so rapidly and the window to get really high quality forage is incredibly narrow. So you want to seed in that 80, 100 pound range of, of fall rye. Get it in as soon as you can. The earlier you plant, the more yield will get as a forage the next year. And I know you can only plant it when the silage comes off. I get that. But it really does respond to an earlier planting date. Treat it like winter wheat, some phosphorus with it in the fall, it will respond really well to that. And then some nitrogen the next spring. So at least 50 pounds of nitrogen uh, or some manure to supply that nitrogen. It needs nitrogen, it'll need sulfur these days. We haven't done those trials, but I just, just put the sulfur on. I, I just will guarantee that you need it. Then you just gotta be ready to go. In our trials, when we, so what we did in those trials was we tried to harvest at flag leaf stage, and at boot stage, and then again at heading. Are those the same day? Uh, <laughs> With rye? That, that is exactly, no, you are, man, oh man, Keith, you are so close to the truth. And that's yeah. the problem. So we had years when the rye would go from flag leaf to boot stage in four days. Now in that four day period, it almost doubled its yield. And you would say, how can that be? But it's in such a rapid growth phase but while it doubled its yield, the quality, I forget exactly, I didn't look it up, but the protein levels went from something like, I don't know, 16 or 17% protein to 11% protein. Like the quality tanked so rapidly. And it happens often in that kind of May 20th to May 24th window. And farmers have nothing else to do at that time of year, right? <laughs> I have others sitting on their hands twiddling their thumbs. Exactly. Well, especially dairy farmers. They never yeah. have anything to do, yeah. right? Like yeah. they're always, yeah. My brother-in-law, by the way, is a dairy farmer and he's about ready to smack me right now. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know Mark, so. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mark would say, okay, Johnson, if it's that dang easy, why don't you buy some cows? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's the, the challenge. And if it's raining when that rye needs to come off, right? Like there's, there's so many challenges in that window. But the other upside is that it hits that flag leaf or boot stage at least a week earlier than triticale or 10 days earlier than winter barley and two weeks earlier than winter wheat. So now I get the rye out of the field, I'm suffering less yield loss 
with whatever crop that I grow after that, whether that's soybeans or it's edible beans. I mean, you talk about a sweet, a sweet deal for a dairy farmer. If they can afford the acres is grow the corn silage, grow the rye as, as the next forage crop and then plant edible beans because they've got hay in the rotation. They've got manure. They've got incredible soil quality. They don't grow a lot of edible beans, so they don't have a lot of disease problems. And man, you hit it out of the park with edible beans. You can make big bucks. You don't always hit it out of the park, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> what about sorghum? Like, would, would sorghum be a viable option at that time? You know, after Absolutely. rye? Because you're late May, early June. Yeah, so actually, there's a really good study out of North Dakota State where they looked at corn for silage, cereal rye as a forage crop, back to corn silage. They compared that to just corn silage, corn silage. And so what they found was that the corn yield in that, in the rye rotation, was less than the corn yield without the rye. But in terms of total milk per acre, they, they actually increased that quite significantly by doing that, that corn, cereal rye, corn. The corn really suffers though. Corn suffers the most after that cereal rye. So if the dairy farmer is growing soybeans in the rotation, it fits really well after that cereal rye crop. I bet you could even direct seed alfalfa after that cereal rye crop. And it wouldn't be as early as I'd like it, but as long as you got some rainfall, I, th I think you'd have a decent shot there. Or the sorghum sudan grass. I think again, that, that's the perfect time, first of June. It's really when you'd like to plant that stuff. It's warm. It's going to come out of the ground fast. Your, your grower at Strathroy, that's when you get the shoulder high stuff by now and big, big yields from that. So I think that's a perfect fit. Yeah, well, that farm, for instance, they did some triticale and they tiled the farm and then they planted sorghum in after that. And I think it was maybe the second or third, probably second week of June when they got it in. So, you know, yeah. it, it hasn't looked back. It, it's a phenomenal looking crop right now. So Yeah, but don't don't plant it on the 1st of May. If you plant sorghum sedan grass on the 1st of May, it will do very poorly because it, it doesn't handle cool temperatures at germination. So it's one of those crops that you really do need to wait until, you know, sometime late May or early June to really, at least after the 15th of May before you plant that crop. Yeah, because all the reading I did on it, I think it was like 65 degrees Celsius soil temperatures before it actually you know, you'd get a good germ on it, but I could, I could be wrong there. I, I don't know. You're the, you're the expert on that stuff. So. Yeah. So, so corn likes 50 degrees, soybeans like 55, sorghum, sorghum in particular, really uh, 60 degrees is kind of 58 to 60. We're talking Fahrenheit now, not Celsius. Yeah. Right? The poor, yeah. I feel for all the poor kids that are listening <laughs> that have, don't know Fahrenheit. What are they talking about? Yeah. So, so sort of in that, that uh, 15 degree uh, Celsius range. Can you maybe talk about nitrates and corn silage too? I think that's a kind of a hot button issue or it could be, you know, with some of the drought stress corn that we've seen. So nitrates, that really happens when it's, it's really dry all the way through the growing season. And so we have lots of nitrogen in the, in the surface soil, but we call it positionally unavailable. The nitrogen is in dry soil and roots can't pick it up in dry soil. And then when you get that big flush of rain right just before harvest, all of a sudden it's available, the nitrogen actually comes to the plant in the water. And so the plant takes it up and we get high nitrates. So a lot of rain this week actually helps reduce the risk of high nitrates, unless you were harvesting, for example, that sorghum sedan grass you talked about. If it had been dry, dry, dry up until just now and it's ready for harvest and we got that three inches or four inches of rain, now nitrates become a big concern in that crop. Whereas for corn silage, now that we've gotten the three or four inches, that means that that nitrogen in the soil profile is going into the corn crop as it's growing and turning into protein. And so as protein, it's not a problem to the cow. It's only a problem to the cow when it is in, in that nitrate form. Something that we deal with up here a little bit is three cuts versus four cuts uh, in hay or haylage. So do you want to just talk on that a little bit, advantages, disadvantages? Yeah, for sure. So the less cuts you take, the longer the alfalfa is going to survive. That's the bottom line because you let it grow further through its life cycle. It rebuilds the crown reserves better. 
It'll handle stress better. It won't be as susceptible to disease. You're tramping on it less times, right? So from an agronomist standpoint, there's all sorts of good things that happen when we go to a three-cut system versus a four-cut system. With some of this new alfalfa technology where we maintain that digestibility longer into the growth period, I think a three-cut system comes back on the table. A four-cut system, I mean, gosh, at the end of the day, you guys need quality. If you need to take four cuts rather to have that quality, I can't argue with that. So as an agronomist, we'll just have to find ways to, to work around that, whether it's a shorter rotation. I'll throw out one just as a really interesting thought process. We've had excellent, we talked about the cereal rye thing. We've had excellent results with a grower has a thin, almost run out hay field. They're short forage they want they're going to keep it till for one cut next year but it's you know the alfalfa is not good in the fall uh, after that you take that last cut off go out there and drill cereal rye into that hay field like the volume increase that you can get now again there's the related issues with timing of harvest we've had situations where growers have, have basically doubled their hay yield on that field the next spring just by doing that so so just kind of a thought process around that that i that not a lot of guys do that's kind of neat or hey like, should we be planting grasses and alfalfas together i, I think growers plant grasses uh, mainly because grasses help fill in stands when the alfalfa thins out you're the nutritionist you're you're asking an agronomist for, if we should throw that in well agronomically sure but what does it do from a quality standpoint and if you're going to throw in a grass for goodness sakes use an aggressive grass you talked about rye grass that's that's all they use in europe because it will give you a second cut if you're a dairy farmer and you're using timothy or brome as your grass with that alfalfa give your head a shake what useless grasses are like come on man it's ridiculous and you might hate me for this but i love things like orchard grass why do i love orchard grass number one because it'll force you to cut the alfalfa on time because it goes to head so stinking early. But number two, it regrows. And so you get grass in the second cut. If you want production and you're going to put a grass with the alfalfa, at least plant, whether it's orchard or it's reed canary or it's a tall fescue or it's, but something that will give you more production. Uh, Dairy farmers typically have lots of manure. If they're putting manure on after every cut, or even after every, every two times out of three or four cuts, there's nitrogen in that manure. The alfalfa uses the nitrogen, but not very efficiently. The grass will use that manure nitrogen way more efficiently from that standpoint. From a management perspective, yeah, it's way easier to manage pure alfalfa. Agronomically, I can manage a pure stand from a weed control standpoint, right? It's much easier. I get why producers put the grass in there because particularly you're trying to make dry hay. Uh, it just keeps that swath more open and, and you're way better able to make dry hay. So I know why it's in there and, and do what you need to do from a quality standpoint. We'll figure the rest out. Well, I think that's kind of the, the topic, right? Is how do we get the best of both, right? We want the best quality, but we also want the best quality for the cows, but we also want what's the best quality for that field and soil itself, right? To make sure both sides are working well and getting good quality on both ends of it, right? And from that perspective, the grass helps. It's got a, a nice fibrous root system. It's going to help carry things better. So, so there's some reasons from a soil health standpoint to add the grass. Just one comment I have on that and chime in here. I think we always compromise one crop for the other when we're blending grass and alfalfa. So in the spring, if we see the grass coming to head, maybe we're not getting that and we've got to cut right away for quality. Maybe we're not getting that full yield potential of that alfalfa. 100% right. So, and again, that's why I tend to push towards an orchard grass or early heading grass. We have, we have actually a later heading orchard grass now that times pretty nicely with alfalfa. You're absolutely right. I mean, gosh, if, if I time my, my alfalfa cut properly, some orchard grasses would be straw by the time I, I cut the alfalfa. And, and Timothy would barely even be there because it has, has yet to shoot to head. There's, there's not many grasses that time really easily to the alfalfa harvest, but there are some, and annual ryegrass would be one, and, and a later maturing, later heading orchard grass would be another that I think that you could do that with. And then it, you get some grass in the second cut as well, and the alfalfa nitrogen will actually feed the grass so that it's not all bad. 
but there are some management challenges. Soon you should go to a, a, a mixed blend or a yeah, grass alfalfa stand. Yep. And I know uh, you've talked a lot about sulfur. So what's the deal with sulfur and alfalfa? Because we're seeing our producers put it on there and it's incredible on how much more alfalfa they're getting off these fields. Yeah. So bottom line, alfalfa, because it's high protein, right? So protein is, is uh, nitrogen and sulfurs. There's for every 10 molecules of nitrogen in protein, there's one molecule of sulfur. If you go back to when I started my career, I did research on sulfur and what a waste of time. There's no response to sulfur. Get, like, why would you? Don't waste your money. But at that point in time, and it's getting back before, I don't know, uh, Luke likes, looks like a pretty young guy. He might not even have been born back then, but, but we were getting 30 pounds of sulfur per year out of the atmosphere. And so you know, a good alfalfa crop, it might remove 20 pounds or maybe even 25 pounds if it's a really, really big yield alfalfa, but you got 30, so you got no response. Plus we're putting manure on. What astounded me is when we did that, that sulfur research and we did it, uh, one of our cooperators was an excellent dairy farm uh, just north of Mitchell. They only applied manure once per season on the alfalfa after first cut. And we put sulfur on that alfalfa and the yield response was unbelievable. We, I think it was a 14% yield response. The other thing that we found, if you put potash on, and you were short sulfur, then you actually reduced the alfalfa yield. We always said potash on alfalfa, it's a heavy potash feeder. Get the potash on, more potash, more potash. If you're short sulfur, and I wonder if it comes back to this, this ion balance in the plant, because sulfur is like nitrogen, it's a negative ion. And if you got a whole ton of potash trying to push positive ions in and not enough sulfur to balance that, we actually reduced yield with a ion fertilizer, like it's craziness from that standpoint. Yeah, uh, sulfur to me is just a must on alfalfa fields in today's climate. And the question is, you know, how much manure do you put on? How much sulfur do you get out of the manure? And so how much more sulfur do you need to put on in order to, to get that crop to maximum yield? And what about application timing on that? Like, is that better in the spring or in the fall or? So it's a really great question. Sulfur only gets taken up in the plant as sulfate. And sulfate is a negative ion. And so over the winter, it tends to leach out. And so you start in the spring and your sulfur isn't at zero, but it's a lot lower than maybe you would like it. So you can put fall application of elemental sulfur on, and we're quite sure that that will do everything you need for second cut and third cut and fourth cut, because the bugs in the soil will chew on that elemental sulfur you put on and turn it into sulfate and that will supply the plant. Where we're not as convinced and we're still sort of looking at, at do we need additional sulfate sulfur for first cut in the spring? The bugs in the soil release it, but the bugs in the soil are temperature driven. And so it's a bit like winter wheat. Winter wheat responds more to sulfur than corn does. Winter wheat doesn't need more sulfur than corn. Corn actually needs more sulfur than wheat. But corn's demand is June, July, August. Wheat's demand is April, May, June. The bugs in the soil oftentimes have done nothing for us in April and May, and they start to churn it out in June. So my wheat crop that needs it in May, April and May, if the bugs haven't released any, if I don't put some sulfate on to feed the crop, then I suffer big yield loss. I wonder about that first cut. So when you say, what's the best? Elemental sulfur is the cheapest. Put on 50 pounds of elemental uh, sulfur in the fall, and that should do you for two years of an alfalfa crop, at least for second, third, and fourth cut. Your first cut, I don't know, just do some strip trials. We don't have a lot of data, but to go out there with some ammonium sulfate uh, in the spring and put on 10 pounds of actual sulfur just to boost that crop and, and don't do a strip. And then call me and tell me what you learn because I want to know and, and we simply aren't sure on that first cut. Is there things that producers can do in the fall or in the spring, you know, to either put the alfalfa to bed or wake it up in the spring to kind of give it its best uh, chance at success? Yeah, and the answer is absolutely. Fall, you know, after last cut, you're out there with, with fall potash and put in the elemental sulfur and the plant 
in the fall, it's trying to increase the salt concentration to improve winter hardiness, and the potash does that. That's why potash helps uh, with winter hardiness, helps it overwinter. So do that in the fall. Keep your phosphorus levels up. Most dairy farmers don't have a big problem with phosphorus levels, but I don't care whether you're a cash crop or you're a dairy farmer, we need good base fertility. So don't forget about your phosphorus levels, but potash and elemental sulfur in the fall. And then in the spring, really in the spring, it makes its own nitrogen. You know, I don't, if you need a spot to put manure and you can get some manure out there on that, that last frost in the spring, I don't want it on frozen ground. Don't put manure on frozen ground. It's all bad. We are not going down that road. Some manure early in the spring to give it some nitrogen and some sulfur to kickstart it. I don't think that's all bad. I think that sort of uh, kind of boosts the whole thought process. Beyond that, I think we just have to look at maybe do we need sulfate sulfur in the spring? And, and as I said, I don't know that answer. I, I think it'd be a fun trial to learn. Yeah. And I know I get the comment from producers all the time, like, you know, we've only got so many acres, so how are we going to maximize our yield per acres? And I think it goes back to, well, I know it goes back to stuff like this, where, you know, these fine little management things to try and, and boost these yields on these alfalfas or these hay crops. I shouldn't generalize as alfalfa, but yeah, the hay crop. Sticking with alfalfa, what are your thoughts on fungicide on alfalfa or forage crops? So the, the big challenge is, can you get it done in a timely fashion? And, and actually, the fungicide on alfalfa work, works better in a three-cut system where we've gone to the alfalfas that maintain their quality longer. And the reason for that is you need 21 days between application and harvest, not for the pre-harvest interval, but to give the alfalfa enough time to benefit with additional growth from that fungicide application. So you put the fungicide on, it keeps the disease under control, it lets that, that alfalfa grow more, and because it lets the alfalfa grow more, we can actually increase yields quite significantly. We have to give it that 21 days. If you put a fungicide on and harvest 15 or 18 days later, you're not gonna get enough extra yield out of that to pay for that fungicide. Especially first cut alfalfa, when I look at the amount of leaf loss in the lower canopy, man, fungicides can pay in a major way. You do have to manage them appropriately. And that'd be growing season dependent because the reason I ask is, so in 2018 on a farm, we did a fungicide application and we ran it across the scale to see what the to see if it paid, right? Yep. We ended up with three quarters of a ton more dry matter and higher quality feed. Same farm this year did it. And I think we were ahead by like, I don't even know if we were ahead by 50 kilograms of dry matter per acre. And the quality was the same. So is it year dependent or is it timing or it's probably so it's a all, myriad of things? It's always year dependent and it's called weather, weather, and weather. If you're in a really dry period, then the dry weather is limiting the amount of additional growth you can get. It's, it's no longer, the, the fungicide can't make more water. And so it, the plant has more trouble adding that additional growth on. Plus, if it's dry, then the disease pressure is way lower. And so if the disease pressure is way lower, then it's tougher to get a yield boost from that controlling the disease. And we see the exact same thing in wheat when we use fungicides, in corn when we use fungicides. It really is an dependent on the environment at the time. Typically, on first cut, the environment in the spring is lots of moisture, lots of growth, lots of potential for disease. So on first cut, most years, I think it will pay. Uh, on later cuts, I think you can you can play that window or that opportunity a little better based on the, the conditions that when you should be applying. Uh, I think I just had one more question. It's just around uh, dawn and, and fungicides or insecticides and that kind of thing on corn crop. You know, it's happening right now. We're seeing helicopters and planes and high boys going through fields. Um, is there any advantage or, or what's the, I guess, what are some of the common misconceptions with uh, Dawn control through fungicide, I guess? Yeah, so, well, I, I'm not sure. Uh, there's lots of misconceptions. When I'm a silage person, the benefit out of a fungicide can be much greater than Peter Johnson, the cash cropper, because now I'm harvesting the whole plant. And so if I can keep those leaves healthier, I get more tonnage, right? And so the benefit generally speaking to a livestock producer for silage is much greater than it is for a grain producer. On the toxin front, you're going to control jib, you're going to try to get less dawn. It's not just dawn. 
And this is one of the things that I think we really have to do a lot more investigation around is the, the mycotoxin complex that we're getting in that silage crop. The later that you harvest that silage crop, we tend to see those toxins. You're well aware of this, I'm sure. Right? They go mm -hmm. up, but it's yeah. not just Dawn. It's a whole range. It's your alanone. It's T2. It's all these other stupid things out there. The benefit from that standpoint, I, I think most livestock producers are going to get good benefit out of a fungicide application to control that, that ear mold. And if they use a product that also brings some additional plant health, I think that that will, will benefit as well. So there's only three products that control the gibberella portion. That would be Mirvis Neo, Corumba, and uh, Proline. So there's the only three. But we can add other products in, like the Mirvis Neo brings both Dawn and Plant Health because it's it's got more than one active in the jug. We can use Light Amp and bump up the Corumba. We can use Stratego Pro and drum, bump up the Proline so we get the best of both worlds. I'm not sold on every cash crop grain producer using a fungicide. The average yield gain is six bushels per acre. If we don't have a gibberella problem, it's tough to pencil that out. I get into silage, man. I, I just think we're feeding that ruminant. There's a whole bunch of toxin interactions we don't understand. The potential to benefit gets way bigger than it does for the cash crop farmer. I know on our end, and this was the question a couple of weeks ago from producers, like what's the cost of a toxin binder versus what's the cost of a fungicide application? And if you feed a toxin binder completely through the lactation per cow, you know, you're looking at 18 to 30 cents a day, depending on what your toxin level is, right? So it pays... If you want to do a little bit more preventative, I guess maybe it does pay to try and, and get that control up front because I think, I forget what it was, what they are telling us, like maybe 25 or 35 bucks or something like that an acre for... It depends for, on which product. Yeah. It depends if you yeah. fly it on or you use ground rig application. But don't yeah. forget, it's it's not just a toxin binder. There's also a yield boost that you get, right? And and so that yield boost is also going to help pay for, for the product uh, as well as avoiding needing the toxin binder, hopefully. Yeah, we just got to get uh, farmers running their silage wagons across the scales yeah, and we can good. quantify that stuff. <laughs> but when it comes time to fill a bunk, that's all that's going to happen. So Yeah, I know. Yeah. I hear you. But The one thing I was going to ask just on a kind of a side, nothing to do with dairy, but what are uh, what are you hearing there for the wheat yields this year? Like I know on the podcast, you've been talking about some good ones. So why don't I know that's your your passion. So what are what are we hearing for record numbers this year? Yeah, so so the record right now is 145 bushels per acre. Wow. Holy uh, cow! <laughs> Where about a lot you of wheat? That's uh, that's South Oxford uh, on the on the glorious silt loams of Oxford County, God's gift to Ontario for soil. Uh, planted early after edible beans, well managed. Uh, not everybody is l that lucky. The people out in in the Renfrew area, some of those wheat yields are coming off at 30 bushels per acre. So. Both ends of the spectrum out there, and, and it's not, for most growers, it's not a record wheat yield. It, it was just too hot through grain fills. So uh, I'll take 145 bushel per acre any day I can get it, but uh, yeah, not there for everybody. No, I, I know you've been talking about that. I was just curious what the latest numbers were there, but that's pretty impressive. The real upside, Luke, is for the for the dairy producers is the straw yields have been through the roof, man. Like unbelievable straw yields, and and they're not having to pay seven and a half cents a pound in the swath for the stuff. So everyday wheat harvest goes on, the straw price keeps dropping. So, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything new and exciting coming down that you're hearing of? No. So the only thing that maybe I would add, and I should have mentioned this when when I was uh, talking with Keith about about the the fungicide on corn. Man, if you are growing a brown midrib corn, you must, I repeat, absolutely must, there is no question, apply a fungicide. Okay. Brown midrib corns are so susceptible to so many diseases. Uh, Judy Colkman, Dr. Judy Colkman, was a summer student of mine way back when. She grew up here in Ontario. She's now at Cornell, and she's been looking at brown midrib corn and disease susceptibility and, and they are just not good from a disease susceptibility. So I know it's great from a feed the cow standpoint, that's awesome, but you will get huge bang for the buck on a brown midrib from that, that fungicide application because they are so susceptible to, to many, many different diseases. So for sure, on the brown midrib, you've got to use a fungicide. 
but I just thought maybe that's that's about the only thing that's coming, uh, Luke, that uh, is new that maybe should get added in. I have a funny little story for Pete. Do you remember John R. Johnson? Absolutely. <laughs> so my introduction to agribusiness was through you at John R.'s Laneway when I was probably, well, I was knee high to a grasshopper. So I, I, I wasn't driving yet. I was probably like 12 or 15 because you had left. And I was like, who is that guy? Flail of his arms talking about wheat. <laughs> Johnson goes, ah, oh, it's Peter Johnson. <laughs> Sorry. That's just the way I am, man. It's just no, the way it was perfect because, you know, growing up in a rural community and I didn't per se grow up with agribusiness around me and it really kind of, it brought me in and kind of gave me an idea. There's more to agriculture than just farming. So yeah, I thought it'd be a funny little thing to no, cool today. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Um, the one thing I will say, I'm sure anybody listening to our podcast has probably caught on to Peter's podcast himself there. It's, it's wheat. How did you say there's our wheat Pete's word? Yeah, it's Wheat Pete's Word. If you Google Wheat Pete's Word, and if people have questions out of this podcast, have them fired them to me, right? It's just pjohnson at realagriculture.com. Happy to answer questions anytime. Yeah, it's just easy for me. I just have it subscribed, so I just get your notification when the next episode comes. So Right on, yep. On the title there, but I do enjoy it. So definitely encourage anyone that hasn't listened to that, check it out there, and you get some nice updates kind of weekly on what's going on out in the crop side of things. Well, thank you so much, Pete. I really do appreciate it. We are going to wrap up for today. Uh, and again, like Pete said, if you guys have any further questions about what we talked about today uh, or, or anything just related to your farm specific, feel free to shoot him a, a text or an email and uh, we will wrap it up for today with that. Thank you guys for listening. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and I look forward to sharing with you real soon.